I've been podcasting for over 10 years, and this show very well might be my favorite show. It's with Charles Eisenstein, author of The More Beautiful World, Our Hearts Know as Possible, Sacred Economics, and some other incredible books. I'm not going to say any more than that, other than this podcast is brought to you uninterrupted by Onnit. Onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything. Enjoy the show. Charles, my brother, it's been a pleasure to spend this day with you, man. Aubrey, yeah. I'm so happy I've stayed with you instead of the Super 8. We had a variety of circumstances from the universe that have <laughs> created this exact situation from airlines being canceled to shuttles not showing up to a whole bunch of things. Um, but it all worked out perfectly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful when things happen that way because you can have that philosophical belief. And that philosophical belief tends to manifest the reality of some more perfect situation happening when you hold that to be true rather than you know chastising the world for all of these circumstances that have transpired and this is something that you talk about it's uh it's a place where your belief in something like that it not only helps you as the individual it seems to do something more with different circumstances or maybe it all rests in the individual how do you look at that you know, do you look at that as an individual thing or do you look at that as something that's actually affecting the collective in a way? Well, what's coming to mind, uh, it's, it's this kind of orchestration of events that I experienced, for example, in the, in the last 24 hours. It seems to happen regardless of my belief in it. <laughs> in fact, it's not like, okay, I'm going to believe that really well and now I'm going to start manifesting. <laughs> right. But it's actually more like I'm like this bumbling idiot that. <laughs> Inspector Gadget. <laughs> that, yeah, that like constantly forgets that there is an intelligence beyond myself and that I don't need to impose my order and my control on the world. And having forgotten that, I try and I hit brick walls and I fail and I give up. And then a way is opened to me that reveals what I'd forgotten mm -hmm. and directs me. And sometimes it, you know, comes in the, in the form of a gift, like something I'm so thankful for. Yeah. Sometimes it comes in the form of a challenge that allows me to know what I'm serious about and what I'm willing to give up on. Yeah. And if it weren't for that challenge, I'd never know that. Right. Yeah. I mentioned Inspector Gadget, and it's interesting because as I've dived deeper into people who understand myth, like yourself and Jordan Peterson, and they start to talk to me about the myths behind this, it seems like Inspector Gadget could be one of these myths where we as an ego, an individual, believe that we're always saving the world and that we're really doing something when it was really, is it a cat or a dog that he has? that's like actually the wise one who's actually doing all of the work and Inspector Gadget has all of his tools and his technologies and things and he thinks he's really kicking ass. But if it wasn't for the cat, which is the universe, which is that unseen guidance that is there whether we acknowledge it or not, we would just be bumbling around and, and not actually accomplishing anything. And it seems like there's, a, there's kind of a, maybe even a subconscious mythology in that, in that story being told. Yeah, there's a paradox when the uh so like I, I'll, I'll try and try and try to achieve something and not succeed and my efforts to control the world fail my efforts to engineer that which i want to see fall infinitely short yet 
they my my sincerity and my hard work tugs at the universe mm -hmm. it issues forth as a prayer and say and and whoever's looking at listening to prayers says okay eisenstein is serious he tried really hard he had no idea actually <laughs> how to do it but i see his sincerity because when when a prayer is just verbal then whatever's listening to the prayers is like hold on is that guy serious because he says he wants you know environmental healing but he's not acting in accordance with that he says he wants peace on earth mm -hmm. but here in this encounter he just was verbally violent and judgmental like i'm kind of confused what right. this guy really wants but but when somebody when anybody um commits to something makes sacrifices like expends their effort that is a much more convincing prayer that's a beautiful way to look at it because so often we get lost in the words of a thing as if and words do have you know resonance and they do have a certain magical quality to them when ushered but the full intention behind that is so much more powerful especially when you're trying to communicate with the wordless capital u universe right and that that intention is what actually carries so much more than the words that we have you know in the words that we offer in these different hollow rituals that we might think are important but it's putting our heart into them and, and you talk about this in an article you wrote about ceremonies about mm -hmm. it's really about the intention to make your actions sacred your prayers truly from the heart and and again going back to this inspector gadget you know myth there's the idea that if it wasn't for inspector gadget trying earnestly to save the situation the cat wouldn't be helping him you know right. i mean it's like it's his effort that is the prayer and the cat's like all right i see you trying your best you got all these gadgets you're really going for it i'm gonna help you and you know he is sincerely doing his best and that's where the co-conspirator of mm -hmm. the of the world starts to assist him yeah that's um a beautiful interpretation of that i had i really didn't think i was going to be talking about inspector gadget with you <laughs> for the first yeah 10 minutes it was that first in your checklist over there <laughs> nope that is not list number one on that by any means but i'm glad we started there but talking about these myths you know this is a this is a big thing and when we were at dinner yesterday um you talked about your you seeing yourself in the role of understanding explicating and helping to rewrite some of the myths we've had and one of the really significant contributions to this has come when the world was put under pressure in this last year through the coronavirus and you wrote an article called the coronation and this created a different mythology and your the point of that and the purpose of that wasn't to describe what it is and what it isn't the factual nature of COVID-19 and all of that and I think a lot of people get really lost in what are the facts what is it actually doing what's the transmission rate what's the death rate are the tests accurate are the deaths being counted correctly blah blah, blah. it gets all lost in that but fundamentally even somebody who can agree on some middle ground understanding of what it is and from everything from the transmission to the virus to the vaccinations agree on a middle ground there can be a massive difference in the myth behind what they believe with the exact same set of facts so and i think this is one of the important things to really point to in this is oftentimes we get lost in arguing in the facts and you know the facts can be important the fact i say facts with a quote right because there's a lot of interpretations of this it's our and i think that's what 
Daniel Schmachtenberger would call like epistemic hubris, this belief that we actually understand the facts when you have a, what he also, you know, refers to, it's not his word, but a hyper object, something that's so complex that it's almost impossible to understand the, in the complicated nature of the virus and a pandemic and spreads in a human body. You can't really understand it anyway. So we believe that we understand the facts, but what's far more important than that is the story, is the myth about what this is and what we are as humans living this life. So I'd love to go into the two different the two different stories that can be told with the same set of facts and the two different beliefs that that we're seeing kind of emerge given the constant that two sides will create avatars giving the constant that two sides agree on these middle ground facts there's seems to be you know one and i don't want to name i don't want to name the sides i'll let you do that but let's talk about Let's talk about the story that's you know involves a story of fear, a story of separation. These stories, and then we'll talk about the other story as it pertains to this particular event, which is in our you know collective consciousness, really deeply imprinted at this moment in time. All right, how many hours do we have? <laughs> as many as we want. Because yeah, because okay, yeah, um, I, I love Daniel Schmachtenberger um, mm-hmm. and. Um, really enjoy kind of sharpening swords with him. Not that we're at all confrontational with each other. Like mm-hmm. there's like a love current here. Yeah. Um, but it, we do have some disagreements or some maybe some areas where um, we still haven't completed our process of coming to a deeper truth. So I'd like to just like, so he's all about sense making you know and mm-hmm. and given all of this conflicting information and all of these conflicting narratives and the information warfare that's going on how do you make sense of the world which another way to put that is how do you arrive at a story uh, an interpretation of events a story of what what's happening in the world and who am i in that that makes sense uh given all of this data so I would say that we can't even start with commonly accepted facts. This is very frustrating mm. uh, when we're trained in, okay, let's agree on the facts and then argue about the interpretation. But if you look at uh, the controversies going on around COVID-19, for example, but it's pretty much any issue, what is most striking is that the two sides don't even agree on what the facts are. Absolutely not. They don't agree on what, what a valid source of fact is. Uh, the New York Times, in fact, uh, like a month or two ago, came out with a an article saying, critical thinking will get you in trouble. If you come across something by, say, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., you need not even read it. All you need to do is go to Wikipedia, and it will say that he is, you know, uh, a conspiracy theorist of anti-vaxxer, et cetera, et cetera, need not even read him. Like that, whatever facts could come from that source, are banished from a certain ideology, a certain worldview. The other thing about sense-making, it's not an intellectual process Mm. because each of these stories, each of these myths that are calling to us now, and it's not like, you know, there's two sides and one side subscribes to one myth and one side subscribes to the other myth because in fact, both of these myths that you referred to live within each one of us 
to some degree. Mm. Um, so these these myths or these stories, like for example, I don't want to be too abstract here. So like the story of it's a new adversary, a dangerous virus, and the forces of science and technology are coming to the rescue so that we can return to normal lives and resume the trajectory of progress toward greater and greater health and well-being. Okay, that would be a myth. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's true, not saying it's false. Myths carry truth, even if objectively they are in some sense not true. For example, the Hindu and Native American myth that the world rests on the back of a turtle. Obviously true. And if you show a picture of the earth from outer space, no turtle. That has nothing to do with it. Yeah. It's still true. Right. Okay. So, so a, a, a myth, a story, a paradigm, it's not just an intellectual construct, but it is co-resonant with a state of being. So ultimately, sense-making and, and the difficulty we have in sense-making reflects a... A, a watershed or a crossroads and a crossroads in who we are. Mm. Each story of the world corresponds to a story of the self and the story is a layer on top of something much, much deeper. Yeah. So this is, and this was the point of the coronation saying we are, we are at a crossroads here facing an initiation and the initiation is a crowning an initiation into sovereignty where this progress this 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 process of technological totalism that has been taking over more and more of life um, and has been mostly unconscious is be, is going to be made conscious to us so that we may choose whether we actually want that or not we're being shown like a fast forward version of the future because everything happening in COVID, like all of the lockdown, all the distancing, all the masking, this is actually not new. The migration of education online, shopping online, dating online, people becoming more and more afraid of each other. Mm. Um, the, 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 the totalitarian control of society, the surveillance, like none of this started with COVID. It just accelerated. Right. And it was kind of unconscious. It seemed inevitable. And so now the generosity of the universe is saying, do you really want to go there? Here's what it's going to look like. Right. So we get, we get to choose. Yeah. Yeah. What the, the purpose of me trying to say, to trying to create a situation where two sides believe in the same amount of facts is I think sometimes you might have the false belief that the facts determine your story, right? So, oh, well, I don't believe that covid is that dangerous therefore i don't believe that we should wear masks and i don't believe that right. we should gather ever and hug ever because i don't believe these set of facts but that's not actually necessary you can you can have two sides who's who believe exactly the same thing about the virus itself but have two different worldviews that lead them to two different things someone could believe that it is exactly that dangerous but say the value of human connection and hugs loneliness being the number one epidemic in our in our world the incredible need for human connection right now it supersedes this desire for safety at all costs this you know this rampant fear of avoiding any death at the cost of really celebrating life given the same set 
of facts. These two stories are emerging. And of course, there are so many different interpretations of the facts. But to me, that's not what's the most interesting thing, because I honestly don't even know what the facts are, right? Like, I really don't know. I don't have the I don't have the ability to grapple that. I don't think most people do. But the stories that are emerging are so disparate. You know, they're so different to how people are responding. And as you said, I think it goes to the fundamental stories that we all carry. Yeah. The Yates line is coming to my mind. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. <laughs> In, in any highly polarized debate, I always look for what do both sides secretly agree on without knowing it? What premise do they share? What assumption do they share that's actually at the, at the crux of resolving the issue? And you named it with COVID-19. To even be debating first and foremost you know, are the deaths inflated? Is the vaccine effective? Is it safe? Do masks actually work? Do lockdowns actually work? I mean, you know, I, I, we could get into the war of the dueling studies here where I yeah. pull some out that's I'm like, what about Ivory Coast? What about Nigeria? And you're like, oh yeah, well, what about Brazil? And like, <laughs> you know, what about Sweden? What about... That whole conversation assumes that like even if say I'm I'm an anti-masker, um, anti-vaxxer, not that I ever would actually be one of those, um, <laughs> but let's just say that I am, and 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 I get and I focus the debate on that. I'm saying if you're right, then yeah, we should lock down, we should distance if necessary forever, right? Because I'm agreeing with the premise that if it saves lives, uh, we should do it. But like I like to ask people. If, if you could increase your life expectancy by five years at the cost of never having a hug with anybody outside your household again, never going in public again, never traveling again, never singing with other people again, never going to a festival and dancing with others again, would you do it? Five years, would you do it? I mean, I don't know how many years you would have to take off my life for me to agree to that premise, right? I mean, it's, yeah. but that goes again. So then we're talking about, since you asked that question, you know, personally, for me, I don't understand death. My story of death is far different than the story that a lot of people have. I feel like, and this is my own subjective belief through my own journeys, I feel like I understand, truly know with a G, that my essence call it your soul call it whatever moves on and life continues even as my body decays right and so i don't have a, this terrifying fear of death i know that i'm here to live and help everybody else live really capital l fucking live no matter what mm -hmm. even if the meteor is coming like let's all right maybe we can create some armageddon scenario where we put a nuke in the meteor and split it in two and bruce willis saves the day great go for it but in the meantime let's fucking throw burning man's every month you know right. like let's live let's yep. really live and that that's what it comes down to it comes down to on one level validating that that seeing each other's faces is important that hugs are important that gathering is important because right now we have a public health calculus that diminishes all of those things that holds safety as the god of our civilization 
when I was in the airport, man, safety, keep safe, keep safe, keep safe. Our number one priority is your safety. Like, are we here on earth in order to survive life? Hmm. It's like what you said, ultimately, all of this denies that we're going to die someday. And this is the, like our, our, our story, our dominant story, it doesn't say that you're never going to die, but it implies that if you, it's, un, it's, it's irrational, but it implies that if you could control the world enough, then you'd never die. And if that were true, then it might make sense hmm. to keep as safe as possible. But when you understand this, the other part is when you understand that, that your time here is finite, no matter what, and that you are more than this separate self, then priorities change. And you'll no longer, I mean, the irony is that when you live at the, at the altar of safety and trying to prevent death, you also prevent life. Mm -hmm. You don't fully live. It's like when you armor to protect yourself against pain, you also armor to protect yourself against love. Like right. you, there's, no, there's no filter that you can set up that, that right. actually works with both. It's, it's universal one way or the other. Right. And this is the core of the mythology of our civilization. It is that who you are is a discrete, separate self in a world of other. Here's one self. Ah, there's another self. There's another self. And because we're separate, what's good for you may, maybe is not good for me. Um, your good fortune could be my bad fortune. And, and because I'm separate from the rainforest and separate from the whales, who cares about them? I mean, maybe, you know, conditionally I'm dependent on them right now, but theoretically we could cut down all the rainforests, fish out all the oceans, cover the world in concrete, turn it into a gigantic parking lot and waste dump and mine and replace all of those ecological functions with technology, carbon sucking machines, and let's bleach the sky white to reflect sunlight and, and make artificial food. Like all of these technologies are actually being developed and we'll be fine. Like that assumes that we are separate selves in a world of other. Mm. It assumes that if the whales go extinct, something doesn't die inside of ourselves. It assumes that when somebody is suffering in the world, that there's some part of me that's not suffering. When there's poverty outside, that I'm not in some way poor. It assumes that I can fully insulate myself from the world and if I can control what's outside of me, effectively enough, then I will thrive. Mm. And our whole civilization is built on this myth of the separate self. And what's happening with COVID, one way to look at this is that this myth is disintegrating, partly because everything we've built on it isn't working very well anymore. We were supposed to be in paradise by now. Technology and science, I mean, 2020, man, that is, 2021, I mean, that is such a futuristic year from when I was growing up, you know? Mm. I mean, we were supposed to have a, like robot servants and space colonies and the cure for cancer and a pill and like just paradise, you know? And it never happened. Like the promise, I mean, this promise of, of technological utopia goes back to like the 18th century. Right. You know? And, and so the myth is breaking down and and the uncertainty, the panic, like the existential panic that comes from that, I think it's one reason why so much of society has snapped back into orthodoxy with the challenge of COVID-19. This myth of separation, I really 
personally i trace it back to the ego you know the ego which is it's translated egos translated as i am but really what it is saying is i am not it is the part of us that is actually designed to create separation you know my my story being that we all come from source and i've connected to that source through a variety of different practices felt it in my body understood what unicity feels like in every cell of my being and so but we need something to navigate some way to learn some way to to understand each other and have separation experiences and that's part of the the joy of this game is to find self in another and embrace them and learn more about yourself through that other self or find self in a in a tree or in a in a cat or whatever you want to do you find another thing that you can interact with but the ego's job is to create enough separation to say so we don't just merge back into the same place where we came from which isn't as interesting a game so the ego is saying i am not but it needs to have the natural check and balance of the soul aspect of who we are which says i am everything you know i am instead of i am not everything there's also another part that says i am everything and then it's the dance between those two working in synergy which creates like a really vibrant human experience but our the way that our culture has gone it's been so ego focused partly because of the repression of all of the practices that allow you to feel that sense of unicity that sense of oh, wow i really am connected to everything but we've just uh, we've been on this runaway train of the ego to the point where we really identify only with the ego and as you wrote in that story where the ego your identity is everything death is the ultimate catastrophe because it is the end of that thing right you merge back to you merge back to everything which if you know that you're going to merge back to everything it's like ah well did i enjoy it but if you don't know that if you don't believe that then it is the catastrophe it's the end of your finite game because you don't really believe in the infinite game right yeah i, I remember when i was maybe seven years old and i kind of like understood what death was for the first time like as mm -hmm. our culture narrates it like which was the snuffing out of a candle flame the total annihilation of the self and like the the, the terror the dread that that instilled in me generated an an anxiety that like has never gone away yeah and maybe it's you know i've healed some from that but how can you ever be at home at peace when you know that you know not very far in the future you have well the death process like intense intense suffering followed by total annihilation that is a pretty bleak mythology yeah and you know my question my rhetorical question for you is why do we do that because it's it's um one way to one so we're at a point where we're we're looking for us a, a successor to the myth of separation and one of the offerings is well we made some big mistake we got off track and we need to return to to the truth but um i like to ask was that a big mistake and a wrong turn or did we choose that for like a valid evolutionary purpose i think that perhaps we did and this is why right 
Let's suppose, and let, let me tell another story. Let's tell another story that the earth is a powerful, sentient God being, right? Goddess, call it. And we are the earth, and we are a way for the earth. We, we think that we're separate from the earth, but the earth is within us, actually cellularly from everything we consume becoming us, from the air we breathe, the water we have. We are her, even if we don't know it, and even if we pretend that we don't know it. And somehow she wants us to pretend that we are not her because that will forge this rampant technological, you know, acceleration beyond even anything that could ever imagine. Because you look at some other cultures who have this deep connection to earth, they're really quite happy, it seems. When I've gone to the villages in Peru and I've seen, you know, the little kids running around and their little brown skirts and playing around, it, it, they're in Eden. It, you, know, you just see the joy that's there and like present everywhere around but they're not you know they like their technology and things when they get introduced to it and but it's not this rampant strong desire because they're they're full they're they have this kind of fullness they're in the plenum of all life but in the denial of that we create massive amounts of technology to try and control nature to try and dominate to try and push off death the chaos of nature the chaos of death that might be coming so we build technology so the advantage of this separation is it will build technology at a rate that we normally wouldn't that's my premise and perhaps the earth knowing that the earth itself is cataclysmic by nature either through you know meteors or through other general catastrophe that comes whatever killed the dinosaurs whatever you know may come to actually exterminate life itself the earth is like well if we let these human beings which are a part of us believe that they are not part of the earth they will create technology that can maybe sustain and proliferate life beyond the natural termination based on the environment that the earth itself is these life ending you know catastrophes that ultimately come and so maybe this is just one story and one hypothesis of why we could be in this and we just don't realize that what we're actually doing is building enough technology to eventually save the earth from a life exterminating event where the earth will eventually have to start all over again i don't i don't think it would exterminate forever but maybe the earth doesn't want that this time it mm -hmm. wants us to survive yeah um I have a, a different theory. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, it's just a story. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't it, even call it a theory, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what I like about that is that it, it it taps into what I think is a very valid intuition that that we humans were created by Earth with a purpose. Mm -hmm. We're certainly not, and I mean humans like with the full complement of our skills, the 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 gifts of mind and hand that we have that we call technology and culture it wasn't like some dumb mistake that nature made and created us and now we're going to kill nature like yeah. nature knew what she was doing yeah. and so this so i think that the the source of your theorizing is like that's the kind of question we have to be asking mm -hmm. why are we here not simply in the old story in the story of separation to survive and reproduce to dominate um essentially we don't have a purpose but to actually ask what is our proper relationship to earth what is our gift for why are we here so 
technology. Okay, so earlier in the conversation, I was talking about my futile efforts to create what I want mm -hmm. through essentially technology of control. I'm gonna control things. I'm gonna make what I want to happen happen. I'm gonna make it happen. What does make it happen mean? It means I'm going to exert a force. I'm gonna plan things out so I know exactly how to do it, what to do, when to do it, how much force to exert, and I make it happen. And I create what I want, right? Yeah. Doesn't work. <laughs> and writ large, technology, as, as we are talking about it, doesn't work. It's the same thing on a collective level. But, and, but what I'm meaning right now by technology is the technologies of control. So we are striving for something and perhaps the, the graduation, the initiation is precisely the failures of our technology to create the material and social utopia that we thought we were gonna create. And that abject failure, that's what, what allows us to transcend the story of separation mm. into a story in which order and intelligence and design are not only the province of human beings that we impose upon the world, but they are the world. They are in everything and that we can accomplish so much more when we don't accomplish it. But yeah. when we instead participate in a creative process. So there are so many technologies in a much broader sense, technologies of listening, technologies of participation, te technologies of co-creation that are waiting in the wings they're waiting in the margins. We call them alternative. And they are so much more powerful, like health medical technologies that understand that there is an intelligence in the body. Sure. And, and an intelligence in material materiality. Or social technologies that understand that you are not a self-interest maximizing flesh robot programmed by your DNA. That you are a divine being who wants to be of service to the world. Like if I hold that story about you and, and relate to you from that place, then I'm inviting you into that story. I'm inviting you into that new mythology. So there's all these technologies. Um, and, and I know like your company is, is based on some of these technologies where it's not about let's control reality better. Mm. So that, and, and once you open the door to that, you know, you get, all kinds of things that would probably get get us censored from YouTube if I talked about them too much, you know. Yeah, I mean the the technology of a kettlebell, something very simple. You know, mm -hmm. in the eighties, particularly the nineties, it was all machines, and you're going to make these machines, and they're hydraulic machines, and there's these weight things and these levers. You find out that that doesn't work nearly as good for the body as a cannonball with a handle. You mm -hmm. know, when you know how to use it, like the way that you can swing it from multiplanar and, and different angles, and it just moves with the body better, creates a healthier, stronger body when you actually fundamentally know how to work this and people have realized that same with health technology something that you know joe dispenza has put out at large saying okay we're testing for the placebo in all of these clinical studies what about if we actually try to harness the placebo ourselves and seeing miraculous results that come from that and so i un absolutely understand what you're saying and for people who have the objection well of course technology works look at our phones look at our this that's not what you're talking about you're talking about technology to make the quality of life better which it certainly hasn't gdp up by 50 percent, happiness down by five percent proliferation of all the you know medical mental illnesses that are that are pervasive loneliness getting out of control technologies are failing to do that but there's other technologies that are latent and nascent inside of us that 
are just ready and available and for me i look at someone like i watched a documentary on ray kurzweil i think it was like transcendent man or something like that and he's trying so hard to preserve his consciousness forever i'm like bro your consciousness is preserved like you won already like yeah. you don't need to develop it man like it's there it's gonna happen and oh and your dad who you wish you could talk to one more time guess what you can like you can go communicate like i've had that experience i talked to my grandma and people are like oh whoa, just bullshit well, all right fine but for me i talked to my grandma and she talks to me i've talked to my uncle my my uh, grandpa aubrey who i never got to meet in the dark room day five when the dmt is flooding my brain and i'm and i'm and he's there and i'm talking to him and all right sure it could be just a trick of the mind and my desires but to me that feels like it's real and it would satisfy the, the unmet need that he has and i believe that it's true you know and of course this is not something that right. i can reduce to an objective truth and i don't think that's the point but the the idea is that you know oh let's create the singularity let's create you know this transcendent man where our, our consciousness lives on it's like it's already created it's already there you know yeah and we're so we're striving towards something that's ultimately futile because we already have it. oh let's find the way to heal the body oh the body knows how to heal itself we just got to believe that it's already healed this is the this is the way right you know as opposed to like controlling every gene and controlling every molecule right. molecule yeah <clears throat> this is uh, by the way when you mentioned your um was it your grandmother grandmother bonnie yeah yeah i was um, my mother passed last year and i'm um you know really i feel like we've become closer since yeah. then and it's not because we uploaded her consciousness onto a neural network right. uh as you're saying like we're we're striving to attain something that that is we're already at right. potentially i use the metaphor um, speaking of myths of the Tower of Babel, which you know, like it's 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 a metaphor for the attempt to attain the infinite through finite means to build a tower all the way to the sky, and you build and you build and you build and you put all your effort into this building, and you're like, okay, we got pretty high. Look, oh man, the sky is still <laughs> just as far as it was. I guess that means we better build it twice as high. You know, I'm not happy. Um, and it, and I got this phone. It's amazing, but but you know it's got quite a lag time, you know. And it takes me a whole minute to download a video, but with five G, I'll be able to download a video in five seconds. I'll be happy then. Like this 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 fake promise of technology that it's going to perfect life, that it's going to usher us into some kind of utopia. If only we, it's just one more invention away, right. like a perfect society. If we finally can get all the data together in one database and label every object in the internet of things and monitor every person's activities and even feelings and thoughts and hormone levels and everything all the time uh like minority report you know we can we can predict we would be able to predict or prevent crime we'd have a, a perfect society of control but we never get any closer as you're saying mental illness depression anxiety autoimmunity like that if you want to talk about a pandemic like that's the pandemic if we're going to be panicked about something and alarmed about something it's it shouldn't be you know 0.2% of the population dying from covid it should be like 30 or 40 or 50% 60% of the population suffering from autoimmunity and depression and yeah. and obesity and like all the other ills 
of civilization that the promise again is, well, we'll find a cure for that. But man, we've had a lot of cures over a, you know, a lot of decades and we're not any closer. So when you stop trying to build the tower, when you give up out of exhaustion and you look around, you're like, actually, we're already in the sky. Hmm. The sky begins an inch off the ground. Paradise, I mean, you mentioned like villagers in Peru, you know? And I've been to places in the world too where I'm like, oh, I forgot what a happy person looks like, hmm. you know? It's not just like the transient happiness of I got something I wanted, but a joy that radiates from the core. Yeah. And I'm like, like even being with people like that, and there are some in our society, usually people who have had near-death experiences or something, but- We were just talking about it in the sun and we were talking about Wim Hof. Yeah. To me, he's one of those people who radiates the same joy of mm -hmm. you know an indigenous villager. He's just living so fully from his heart, playing guitar, kissing his children, mm -hmm. you know, having a beer, laughing, and yeah. just doing his out in the wild with his shirt off, doing his qigong, and just fucking living, man. Yeah. And that's what's so intoxicating about him. I mean, really. Other than that, he's going full in. Let it go. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, but it's not. It's not the words that he's saying. It's how he's saying it. Right. You know. And and it's kind of like to see people like that or places like that. I was in this amazing place in Brazil. Um, it it reminds me that I'm not crazy for thinking it shouldn't be this way. It can be better. Like there's something in me that knows that. Yeah. And when I and 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 that knowledge can become very lonely. And a lot of people have carried that lonely knowledge for years or decades, uh, like a, a mute protest mm -hmm. uh, and an alienation. I mean, that's the that's the premise for the titling of your book. The more beautiful world our hearts know is mm -hmm. possible. Not our hearts think is possible, right. think might be possible. Like we know it. We mm -hmm. have this felt sense that something better is available you know and mm -hmm. and but we can get that easily misdirected into the myth of progress and technology is going to do it and ai is this looming technology that's going to solve all things but until you've experienced something that's beyond computational power love expressed you don't really you don't really understand that there's a hard limit there's a hard bound on what ai is going to be able to do it's not just picking up like when, I, when I'm on the table with a master body worker like Porangi, who I'm apprenticing with, and I'm feeling what he's actually doing, sometimes like cannabis assisted and so I can really get into the reception or there is no fucking chance that a machine robot is going to be able to duplicate what he's doing. There's something happening that is in a dimensional reality beyond computation, period. You know, and that's just one small example of like, why love itself cannot be captured in computation it just it, it is it's a fundamental thing it's the fundamental interconnectedness and even if you know intelligence quadruples every millisecond and it becomes a super intelligence it's not it can't have that thing you know and maybe the other people might argue yes of course machines can learn love i don't think you can i think you're it's it is love it's it is like it is what what life itself is and what spirit itself is and i suppose a machine can be a part of that spirit in some way but i think they're underestimating human beings and like the our potential 
to be able to interact with each other in non-computational reductionist ways. Right. So you've hit upon uh, a key pillar of the old story, what I call the story of separation. It's, it's one of the metaphysical principles of science, which is only quantity is real. If you can't measure it, it isn't real. If you can't weigh it, it isn't real. This was uh, articulated by Galileo, uh, by Descartes, by Newton. So if you accept that, that anything real can be measured and, 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 and that our understanding is a matter of how much we can measure, like then you say, well, love, we don't understand it yet, but someday we will be able to monitor neural firing and, and neurotransmitter levels and hormone levels, and we will be able to scientifically explain love. <laughs> what, have you ever thought about what does scientifically explain actually mean? It means to convert quality into quantity. If you accept that as true, then, and you say, well, machines will never do this and never do that, you're being irrational. If you accept that as true, then machines can someday replace every single function that there is. However, this assumption that everything can be measured, that the universe is measurable and therefore ultimately controllable and knowable fully, that is an ideology. Mm -hmm. That is a metaphysical assumption that is underneath the myth of separation that's underneath what we call science. We think, we would like to think, we in, you know, the, um, uh, the, the orthodoxy, we would like to think that we're past myth now. Myths are something that primitive superstitious people have, but now instead of myths, we have science. We actually do experiments. We test things objectively. And, and thereby we have a reliable source of truth because we don't just take things on faith anymore. Bullshit. We take things on faith, metaphysical assumptions of science that, that everything real is measurable and everything measurable is real. Uh, that, that the question you ask through your experiment does not affect the answer that is given, this, that experiments are repeatable. Mm -hmm. that, that if I do an experiment, then my, my beliefs, my intentions, my being doesn't affect the answer I get. That you can isolate variables, like basic assumptions, uh, a world outside of ourselves that we can measure without changing that which we measure. Like these, and these aren't even scientifically coherent anymore. Yeah, with the, with, with quantum, quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's right. all, and that's the that's the funny thing is that despite that, despite the observer effect being known, people are just kind of putting these in silos mm -hmm. and not really extrapolating what this actually means. Oh, you mean that if I'm looking for waves, I see waves, and if I'm looking for particles, I see particles. So I'm actually influencing the nature of the experiment. But this is only working on very, 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 very small things. Right. It cancels out in the macrocosm. <laughs> yeah, like right. that doesn't yeah. work for that. And and there's right. so many other different principles, even quantum entanglement. You know, this idea that there's two particles that are in the same place at the same time, and that's why they instantly can spin. If you reverse the spin one way to the other, they instantly go that two things in the same place at the same time what does that even fucking mean and how does that how does that change our experimental hypothesis yeah. but it doesn't it's just kind of left out there in in this realm but i think as it kind of goes to what you were saying is 
as we continue with technology and realize that it's not going to bring us this paradise that we thought, we're going to learn what paradise actually is. And as we continue science into the fringe of quantum mechanics, we're going to realize that science itself is not going to offer the promise that it once offered and that there's something intangible about a being a living being as part of the entire capital l capital b living being that we're all a part of yeah you know in the last year um man i mean before covid i was like wow we're really we're really evolving we're really leaving that old story behind you know alternative medicine and and everything is just taking off um and then this crisis hits and we go back it's like all that is forgotten and we default as a society to we're going to have well-being by controlling the world by locking down by separating even more from each other and 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 holding as important the that which we can measure most easily which is uh you know number of deaths number of hospitalizations number of cases and all the things that are hard to measure or that we just don't bother to measure like what about um babies in their neurodevelopmental window needing to see faces like what about the effects of loneliness um you know you can measure suicides but can you really measure depression in mm. all of its shades like we're not upholding it's quantity not quality yeah it's and i'm like so i went I've, I, you know in the last year i've gone through some pretty intense phases of despair um and come to the point where of actually being like even more strongly called to serve a new story because because it's a choice mm. and i understand that i'm part of that choice to to like like part of the it's like i, I talk a lot about the old story the story of separation but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that i'm totally free of it of course part of it is the story of victimization of helplessness because after all this the 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 universe is uh, a melee of force and mass, right? That's part of the old story. Uh, and these forces, these physical forces, these social forces, they're so much bigger than me. I'm one little helpless guy. What can I do? What effect can my choices have? I'm overwhelmed. Like this feeling of overwhelm, this feeling of despair, that actually taps into the story of separation. I'm one tiny little individual in a world of other. My power to affect the world depends on the amount of force I can exert on the world, and it's not very much. And for me, maybe it's more than most people because I have a big audience or whatever, but that's no formula for world changing to say, get big, get strong, get powerful, get rich, because I'm leaving most people out. And I'm also denying the understanding that comes from a story of interbeing, which is that every act is significant, whether or not you can explain it with your rational mind. 
Every choice matters. And no person on earth is more powerful than anybody else. On a 500-year time scale, a 5,000-year time scale, who knows what, what ripple effect your choice, like to maybe spend time with a child or to spend time with a, a dying person or to plant a garden, you know, and it feels in that moment like this is important. This is the right thing to do, but it's not going to increase my platform. It's not going to increase my leverage. Like, so there's this conflict between the heart and the mind. And, and I understand this and I'm, I'm more and more stepping into trusting the feeling of significance and the serenity that comes from that. Yeah. Yeah. The ideology of causality of Newtonian causality is, and I could, you know, even see it slightly creeping in there where there was some justification for that butterfly effect you don't know how this one effect will actually causally cause this but we're actually not talking about butterflies wings affecting some air current creating this causal thing we're actually talking about something else we're talking about causality at another plane of reality a plane of reality that we can't comprehend that's part of the capital m mystery that is beyond our knowing and this is a place that requires deep deep faith and you actually write you know, in your you you wrote an article on on bigness. Basically, I forget the title of the article. Scaling down. Scaling down. Yeah. That was the article. Yeah. And you actually write about yourself. My intent is to get scale based thinking out of the way of love in action. And this is this is a prayer. You know that you're adding more effort to to really truly believe that our actions based in this love affect something beyond what loving that one person will do that one encounter that we have with this person that nobody saw that isn't on instagram that won't share that won't scale that won't proliferate that this thing is actually is actually creating something in a non-causal dimension that operates on a different set of entirely separate laws right right you know like like someone like me and like you we have gifts that lend themselves to being public figures to some degree, right? And therefore, if say, you know, say I um, am part of a of a change, of a revolution, people will say, well, Charles, you really did a big thing. Mm-hmm. But would I have done that thing if it weren't for the way my mother held me when I was a baby? Would I have done that thing if I hadn't encountered this beautiful man? who ran a motorcycle shop in Taipei and hired ex-cons and was like so friendly and generous that when belligerent drunks came up, it was like a sidewalk outdoor motorcycle shop. Like they would walk away happy. Like, and, and that guy touched my life. Would I actually be doing what I'm doing if I hadn't been touched by a thousand people in humble walks of life? My, my, bro, my, Patsy, my ex-wife's brother, um, uh, Guo Qi Zhang, his name is like, he's like a, a, a chef, you know, and um, got, he got cancer and he's just like, I've never seen him do anything that wasn't kind to any human being. And like his example, anytime I'm getting selfish, like he lives in me. Mm-hmm. Would I like just, you know, hypothetically, like if I do some big thing where people want to make statues of me and celebrate me, I'm like, that's the guy 
who should get the statue. Because he did all of that without any possibility of being celebrated and applauded. Right. Like that is, that's the kind of thing that, that, that profoundly affects the world. And everybody has that power. Yeah. So this is not like false humility. This is simply the truth that every act is significant and you just don't know. And like, yeah, the butterfly effect that you mentioned, like that's one tiny aspect of something much, much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's interesting to explore this and really try to adopt it because it's just so counter, it's so revolutionary to our, to our belief system to really believe that these things, these things really matter, you know? And I always, I always used to think about those the monks who were reaching incredible states of consciousness and they were just sitting on a sitting on a mountaintop somewhere and i'm like what are you doing sitting on the fucking mountaintop like get down there like start interacting with people like you're you're just kind of there for yourself and then you know some teacher i forget who it was maybe it was in a book maybe it was one of my mentors was like you don't really understand what they're holding for the collective mm -hmm. like that they're creating a pathway into the quantum realm of potentiality of what human beings can do and just with as with our own neural pathways the more we think about something the easier it is to fall in those grooves in the collective neural pathway of humans those that carve that path that make it easier for everybody else to slip into that same path that was the gift of the christ right the one who reached christ consciousness you know was that by him reaching that level of christ consciousness by him there's other people who can fall in that same groove it's the hardest thing to do to carve a new neural pathway to create change in our own brain but if you think of capital n neural pathway of the neural pathway of the whole world someone who carves that path makes it easier for everybody else to fall into that same same path so that monk who's there who doesn't interact with anybody the hermit in the mountaintop just holding it down maybe doing every bit as much as someone else now that's not to say that if you're called to be the bodhisattva come down from the mountain interact with everybody or you have the privilege and ability to spread your information as widely as possible that you shouldn't do it it's not to say like oh just focus on only this it's a yes and it's like this is important but if you can and if that feels right spread it as wide as possible write the books do the podcast share the message but come right. from it with the right intention right it's definitely not saying don't write books don't do podcasts don't do anything big it's saying if you do that it's not because that's what you have to do to have a big impact yeah it's because that's what is yours to do it's what it's called for you to do the principle you're talking about is um i like to use rupert sheldrake's term for it yeah morphic resonance or morphogenesis which is simply morphic means change right so um, uh, or a morphic field if you anything you do in any change that happens in one place creates a field of change that allows that change to happen more easily elsewhere so it's like you were saying um I remember the like you're you're forging a new neural pathway setting a new template uh, whether it's meditating or it's like kindness mm -hmm. or generosity or forgiveness and that's why the healing that happens on the deathbed is so important. Mm. The rational mind is like, well, that person's dying anyway. Right. So why is it so important that they heal in those last minutes or last days and forgive? But it is contributing to the morphic field of forgiveness. 
Yeah. And man, I mean, look at our society as Americans right now. There's, if we're gonna have any healing on a social level, there's gonna have to be a lot of letting go. And a lot of the the highest aspect of what we're capable of there. There's two, there was two different things, two different stories that I've seen, which really made a big impact. One was actually in, a, it was in the series, The OA. And mm -hmm. there was this, did you see that series? I saw the first season and then like- I saw the first season too. The second yeah. season, they were starting to play some strange game and I kind of lost uh -huh. lost it. But there was that one scene where the heroine in the in the story, who's uh, you know kind of playing the role of the mystic mm -hmm. in that, she there's a kind of troubled kid and this troubled kid at one point takes a pencil lead pencil stabs her in the leg out of anger and instead of her responding with that initial impulse of tit for tat revenge anger you know judgment how dare you you just stab me with a pencil i'm going to get lead poisoning and let's start this fight she just hugs him immediately embraces him and you see in that moment everything just dissolves you know because he wasn't judged for that one thing and he saw that radical divine christ-like forgiveness that was there he changed immediately and he ended up playing an integral part in this kind of mystical dance that they all contributed to sorry for the spoiler alert if you want to watch the oa but i saw that actually portrayed in a piece of art in which prometheus in the legend in the legend of prometheus he's chained up to the rock and tartarus and the eagle is eating his liver and in that scene, in the art, as the eagle was eating his liver, he was embracing the eagle, the eagle that goes to eat his liver, which grows back every single day. And he suffers that torture of getting his liver eaten out by the sharp beak of this bird of prey. He was embracing it with love, right? And that, those stories then are like, a, it's like a waypointer. Those, those lasted, they made this indelible response. I'm not there. I'm not, someone attacks me and my impulse is still... To attack back and and i think we see that in social media we see that when we get attacked and everybody's playing this game of oh you called me this well i'm going to call you this so you said this well i'm going to do this but the more people who when they receive an attack like that can get at least closer or, or even it, i would say yes at least closer to that i love you brother and sister i see you and i know this is coming from pain and i i forgive you completely like right. i forgive you even before you've you've completed whatever insult you're going to sling like that is the thing that unwinds the whole the whole story that these people are living by when they're trying to hurt the other it's very powerful if you can be in that state and you can't do it as for pretend yes like, yes you know you can't be like like you know some like say you're going to attack me and i as like a technique <laughs> i say i love you brother you're a divine being and and if i'm not sincere yeah you're gonna get even madder <laughs> you're gonna know i'm trying to manipulate you right like it has to actually be something i actually see yeah and so then the question is if we want to be a walking invitation to that how do we learn to see it what gets in the way of seeing it one thing that gets in the way is our trauma that we then metabolize by by projecting it onto others another way another thing that gets in the way of it is the ideology of the separate self of rational self-interest of reproductive self-interest like all the stuff you know that that living beings are programmed for ruthless competition and 
that's your nature, but you can transcend that with spiritual practice. That's actually a war narrative. Mm. And it is of the same vibration as any other war narrative. And, and so the question is, how, what does bring you to a state of being able to see that and invite people into that and, and give that hug that's really received? Because if your hope for a healed planet, a healed society, is that we finally defeat the bad guys by force, man, it's hopeless. You know, and you can get into these conspiracy theories, you know, with the Illuminati and whoever, whatever bad guy, you know, you want to erect. Like, they have the guns, they have the media, they have the surveillance, like, they have the money. There's no way you're going to beat them at their own game. Mm-hmm. We need to tap into a different kind of power that's actually much, much greater. And and so, like, what you were talking about um, like this, this piece of art, you know, these stories, these are so precious right now because they remind us of what's true. They like, they're like an induction field. Like you watch something like that in some films too. Like ironically enough, the Lego movie hmm. where one of the few kids movies, and now actually there's more and more, and these, this is so important, but it's one of the, one of the first, well, one of them, I mean, there's Miyazaki movies too and stuff, but, but in in the Lego movie, the bad guy essentially has won. He is so much more powerful. His power is absolute. None of the heroes can come anywhere close to him. He wins. And then he has a change of heart. And then, like, you know, it's all mapped onto the father. You mm. know, have you seen the movie? I haven't. Oh man. Uh it's 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 a, a masterpiece on many levels. Um, yeah, it's really fun to watch, you know, yeah, you can, you sure. can enter into any of your inner child ages and enjoy it. Cool. Um, but anyway, so I won't give it away, but, but it's, um, I'll just say that, that the resolution is I probably already gave it away, but the resolution yeah, it is, away. Fuck it. the resolution is not good. Finally defeats evil at its own game. Yeah. And therefore it offers hope for the world because you can't pin your hope on good defeating evil at its own game. Because as you said, you know, you, you wrote this and I kind of uh, summarized it, but you said, if it comes to war, then good in order to overcome evil must become better at war than evil. In other words, it must cease to be good. Like It becomes a new evil. It becomes a it's new It's the one thing. ring, man. Give it yeah. to Gandalf and he becomes a new dark lord. <laughs> and that's why he yeah. doesn't accept it. Right. And that's why he knows that he, that he won't. And so there's, there's two things I, I want to touch on briefly. And, and one of them is what we were talking about earlier about how it has to be real. I had a really clear, you know, message that came through in my recent ayahuasca and it was you know in the the archetype of the Christ and Jesus was very strong. It was a very strong motif throughout my journeys. And it was such a clear message. It's like it's beautiful to be Jesus, but only if you're Jesus. Yes. Right? Like don't pretend. You can't pretend to you be Jesus. You can't pretend to be. Man. It does the op- it does the opposite, right? Yeah. It like it doesn't work. So be that. Turn the other cheek if you really want to turn the other cheek. But if not, like be real there's power in being real there's mm-hmm. like there's something that's very and without judgment you know well look we started this podcast with an with an intention and partly because of our interaction and, and your intention i wanted to share the truth of things which is that there's two motives for this podcast one i want it to do well 
I'm still caught in the story where I like when my podcast gets a lot of downloads. Yeah. I like when I like when people get it and they share it and I, there's some validation and joy that I get. So I wanted to name that. Be like, look, I this is real. But also also there's another part of me that deeply just wants this to be the best it can be for the people to serve them no matter what, no matter if 10 people listen and share that that's the reality and to accept that it's okay it's okay to have some noble ideals and also some very you know egoic or very like simple selfish ideas too and until we transcend truly transcend that selfishness the only way to is just to name it accept it not self-reject but love that aspect of ourself and eventually through that love rather than putting it back in the shadow then it can potentially have the opportunity to transmute. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very wise. Um, sometimes people like ask my advice on things, you know, like life choices and stuff. Um, and and like I remember one guy, young man, he's like, I've got this uh, job offer in an investment bank, and man, I've read your book. I know what investment banking is doing to the world. The extraction of natural capital, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel really excited about this job offer. Should I should I do it? And I said, trust what makes you feel excited and about your life and happy to wake up in the morning. And and he took the job. Because I I I knew that if he develops that habit of trust, when the day comes that that job is no longer exciting. Or when the day comes when he has some role to play in that institution that requires him to deeply trust himself, then he will do that because he strengthened that muscle. And the other thing is that I think, like at least for me, I often have to attain what I thought I wanted in order to realize that that's not really what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And yep. if I withhold that desire from myself, I'm trapped forever chasing it surreptitiously like trying for it and also stopping myself from it and being stuck in that in that state um whereas like i mean i see a lot of you know i interact with a fair number of very wealthy people and it's like okay i achieve it oh i have been projecting a much deeper soul desire onto this idol of success and now now what i mean yeah. this is a moment a profound moment of breakdown yeah now what and and they may never never have gotten to the now what if they hadn't gone through that right every story has to be lived to its completion yeah this is the this is that you know the idea of buddha would buddha have been able to be buddha if he hadn't lived in the palace with all of his concubines and all of his wealth mm -hmm. and all of that would he have been willing to let it go and it's important to have those stories so that because not all of us are going to be able to reach the pinnacle of ultimate wealth and all of this so we have to be able to learn from these and there's also very good science and research on measuring whether extrinsic results actually yield intrinsic levels of happiness and and it'll show you know 
far and away that it doesn't it doesn't work and that the median and then there are other measures of course you need to get your needs met but they find that that median salary is somewhere around eighty thousand or so give and take and it's argued within just a few single thousand dollars of like what that number actually is but that's like the median point where yes your needs are met and you're able to and that's where you actually find it but most people are chasing this hungry ghost of like looking for more looking constantly for more things and and it ultimately becomes self-defeating and that's ultimately this bigger motif of the self-defeating nature of some of these myths how they are eventually self-terminating it's another attempt to attain the infinite through finite means no matter how much wealth you have it's finite so the question is what are you actually seeking and what you're actually seeking in many cases i don't want to overgeneralize, but in many cases it is true wealth which means belonging, feeling at home in the world, having the f- feeling free to be generous. Yeah. Where, where it wasn't in that book, but I can't remember where I quoted this, this story. I don't think I'll tell it now. But, but often you find the greatest generosity in places where people have literally nothing. Mm. And they will, but if you're a guest in their home, they will like give you the best of what they have, even borrow from a neighbor. I'll tell the story. Mm. It's from Nipun Mehta, a beautiful guy, a friend of mine, um, runs uh, an organization called Service Space, very humble guy. And he went to a, a pilgrimage to India with his wife. And they decided they were gonna live on less than a dollar a day in solidarity with people in India who live on less than a dollar a day. And so they were wearing pilgrim's clothes on a pilgrimage. And, re- and you can't actually live on less than a dollar a day. Uh, people, but, but people would give them food mm. uh, because they were pilgrims and you know, sometimes take them into their house and stuff. And one day they hadn't gotten any food for a while and they were hungry. And this day laborer comes up to them and is like, hey, I see that you are pilgrims. Would you like to come to my house for dinner tonight? Won't be anything fancy, but you know, you're welcome. And Napoon's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So they show up at his house, which is like, he's literally uh, dirt poor. Like there's no floor. <laughs> you know, mm. it's a dirt floor, no running water, no electricity. I mean, he is like, like not quite the poorest of the poor because he lives in a house, but like no furniture. I mean, it is like, they, are, they sleep on the floor, dirt poor. And Napoon comes and the man uh, whispers something to his wife, not Napoon's wife, but the host's wife. And the wife disappears and comes back with food. And, oh, and the man is like, you know, make yourself at home. In our religion, the guest is God. God has graced our threshold. Make yourself at home. And his wife comes with food and Napoon realizes to his horror that they're so poor that they didn't have any food. There's no food in the house. And they had gone to borrow food from a neighbor Hmm. to treat them. And there was even a dessert, but there was no sugar in the dessert because they didn't have sugar. And Napoon eats it and he's like, makes a face. And then she runs out and borrows sugar and mixes that in. And Napoon, this whole time, he's, he understands that he could, he's got a credit card. Mm. I mean, he could go eat at a five-star hotel if he wanted to. Right. But here he's taking food from somebody who's so poor that he has to borrow the food. And, and so he knows he can't refuse that gift. That would be a, a huge insult. So when I heard that story, you know, I'm like, okay, what does that man know 
that almost nobody in this society knows. How is he so wealthy that he's comfortable to essentially give his entire net worth to a guest that he met just that day? How many people do I know who are that secure in the world? Hmm. Like almost nobody, certainly not rich people, so-called rich people. Like where does that degree of security, I mean, because that's really what many people want with their wealth. They want security. They want to feel at home in the world. They want to belong here. They want the rich connections that money substitutes for. And if they were in a Cairo village, you know, or a village in India or something where, where like, where you are embedded in a matrix of relationship where every face you see is somebody you've known your whole life and whose grandfather's story you know, and every plant you see, you know its name and its use for food or medicine or tools or something, and every and which birds eat that plant and what their nest looks like and when they build their nest and how many babies they have and what their song is. And like everything is connected in, in, these, in this web of relationship. Then you know that you exist. You know that you are here. And our society has stripped all that away from us. And COVID is just like the final stage of, uh, of a, of a trajectory of separation that goes back hundreds or thousands of years. But like this isolation yeah. leaves us poorer than ever. And, and so that's like this false compensation of the wealth. I mean, it's, if you're in that state of isolation, it's much better to have money than it is not to have it. Okay. Like this is not about greed. This is about a desperate attempt to meet your needs. Right. And so if you really want to solve it though, we have to look at where's the poverty? What's the actual poverty? And once we change that, man, the whole world changes and we are in paradise. Yeah. It's also the, you know, that famous story of Viktor Frankl, which changed his whole perspective when he saw individuals in Auschwitz tearing off half of their allotment of moldy bread and giving it to other people who were really suffering and really needed it. And that led him to his, that most famous quote, the last of the great humans freedoms is the ability to choose your attitude yeah. towards any given circumstance. That, right? Did I quote that in my book? You did. I think I did. Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah. Like that's, there's these, these experiences that, that can just recalibrate our understanding of what's possible. And, and it occurs to me that potentially one of the the challenges with the monetary system that we have and the way that we accumulate wealth is this idea that we're going to pass it on to our children and, and somehow our lineage is going to carry this thing and i understand that impulse of course you love your kids very much i don't have kids but i can imagine i love my friends i love my you know there's this kind of tribal sense of belonging and in the tribe it, it kind of made more sense that the the state of inner being the state of interconnectedness in that group of 150 where you know that the survival of the tribe is is everything your wealth passes on to the tribe that you're in naturally but in our system we try to accumulate as much as possible and it's okay to die with everything being accumulated because then you pass it to your kids and then they'll carry it on but if we had a different concept where the goal is however much you accumulate at the end of your life you're going to disseminate all of it. And so start the process along the way. Start the process of giving as much away as possible with your goal to literally have nothing at the point where you're going to pass because you've given everything back to the all. 
you know and like her, this idea of heredity was just not the story that we had it was everybody can make their own what well, there's enough but my i will accumulate as much as as much as comes through me and i'll be grateful for all of that but as much as i receive i'm going to give and hopefully amplify it along the way that story would change so much because so much of these stores of wealth they've passed from generation to generation and they're siloed in this way whereas if everybody said okay great accumulate accumulate as much as you want accumulate as much as you can but know that the goal is to give it all away you know by by the end and through the whole life process in a way accumulation is kind of a waste of money yeah you know there it is sitting there (laughs) you know like i'm not using it right now like you know somebody else can use it while i'm not using it right (laughs) that's true yeah i mean i i I, you know i wrote a book called sacred economics um back in i think it came out in 2011 um where i really go into the economics of this because we could actually change our money system so that it discourages accumulation and creates abundance would that be like a negative i didn't read that book so yeah negative interest is part of it. negative interest yeah yeah so that you're actually penalized for the more that you hold without allowing it to circulate right it's basically like storing energy money is energy and storing that energy with allow without allowing it to circulate is it's it's a very selfish thing and i'm in the position when when this podcast releases i'm going to be on the path to having a, a great accumulation of resource. Thanks for this podcast, because it's gonna be so popular, <laughs> yeah. it's gonna double your business. <laughs> so, you know, but in that, understanding these principles, you know, and we've had these conversations and I'm talking to you and Zach and, and you know, Daniel uh, Schmachtenberger and like, man, like, like what, what can I do here? Like, this is, this is such amazing abundance and I'm so grateful for it. Like, how can, how can I use this? Of course, I am part of the all and I'm going to enjoy myself and I'm going to have, you know, have experiences from life. And hopefully those experiences are internal more than external. But what is the way, what is the way that when you are in the fortunate position that you are able to, like, how can you offer this from the heart as that gift? And, and we all have that to a certain degree. You know, we all have the ability, especially sitting where we are, if we're listening to this podcast, we have the ability to be generous. If that person in India can be generous, if Victor Frankl's contemporaries can be generous, like we have the ability to do that as well. Right. So how do we do that in the best well, way? Well, right. And, and, and this is like, you know, you kind of ask that as a rhetorical question, but I really want to take that question seriously. Like where does generosity come from? Like that guy in India or, or the, the concentration camp prisoners, like where does that courage, where does that, where does it come from? Where does that generosity come from? And I think that it comes from gratitude. Mm-hmm. Well, where does gratitude come from? Like, like we hear these things like indigenous teachings about the importance of gratitude or the importance of generosity. And the modern mind steeped in war thinking says, I'm going to make myself feel this because then I'll be a good person. Right. Worthy of the respect of an indigenous elder. You know, I won't be like a white person anymore. I'll be a good person, right? Well, that's actually more war thinking. And it, it, it bypasses an important question, which is where does gratitude come from? Or what blocks gratitude? And... You know, again, I, we could talk about trauma. We could talk about a lot of things, but but I think gratitude comes in large part from simply recognizing what something that's true, mm-hmm. something that 
is obscured from us, which is in modern society, which is the truth that life is a gift. Therefore, your money is not actually yours. In two senses. One is that you cannot hold on to it. When you, when you pass, you're going to leave all that behind. Mm. The only thing you can take with you actually is everything you've given away. And you, to, to realize that, you can imagine yourself on your deathbed. And man, you're not, taking, you're not taking your money with you. You're not taking your audience with you. You're not taking your business with you. <laughs> you're not taking your reputation with you. Nothing. And what is going to feel good in that moment is the thought of all that you have given to the world, which outlasts you. And, yeah. and you have, you were kind of saying the same thing. Like that's what you're reaching toward with this going to give it all away. It's, it's like diffused out into the world. Yeah. And in another sense that the, that your money is not really yours is that whether you are an inheritor or you earned it yourself, even if you earned it yourself, where did you get the ability to do that? <laughs> where did you get your creativity? Where did you get your confidence? <laughs> um, maybe your mother gave that to you. Mm -hmm. Maybe, like, where did you get the ability to digest food? Where did you get your heartbeat? Where did you get the sun? Where did you get the water? Did you earn these things? Did you earn a single one of these things? It's so no. true. And, you know, one of the... So another piece of art, which I think is actually a really detrimental piece of art, it's a statue, a famous statue of the self-made man. Mm. And he's carving him his own self out of some block and it's, car, it's cast in bronze and a lot of people have it. Like, I did this myself. I don't know what level of delusion you have to be in to actually believe that that was the case because I built on it with the support and help of so many people from inception and then so many people prior to inception mm -hmm. you know my stepmom giving me supplements on a on a napkin when i was playing basketball when i was you know 13 years old and mm -hmm. my dad teaching me how to think about things and my mom loving me as close to unconditionally as a human i could ever possibly fathom all of these different things and then all of the support that happened this is a gift from the world right and if you actually have gratitude you know that you have to give that gift back to the world and so it's not only in what you produce, that idea of reciprocity of the things that I'm offering the world are equivalent to what I'm receiving. So the reciprocity balance, reciprocity being this ancient, deep right. law it's not of guilt. the universe. It's not guilt. No. And no. if you do, and if you do something from that, and if you actually even philanthropy from a sense of I need to be a good person, there's social pressure for me to do this. I better give this so that I feel good about myself and other people. That's absolutely the wrong thing. Better to hold your money until you're ready to actually give it from from like the sense of where it actually belongs again it's don't be jesus unless you're jesus like mm -hmm. allow that to actually emerge focus on your gratitude until the point where it really feels right because otherwise as you give then you get scarce and then you accumulate and then you get it's not going to end it's not going to end up work plus it's not carving anything beautiful into the quantum potentiality you're just doing it from pressure yeah you know and that's again that that force and violence and shame and all of these different things trying to be a good boy or trying to be mm -hmm. a good girl in the eyes mm -hmm. of yourself and others like allow it to come naturally like and forgiveness is another th all of these different things like do this when you do this when you feel it you know and that's the that's the way and work on feeling it you know work on really feeling it yeah i mean there's i agree with every word you said 
and I think that's a very important message, except there's one little thing that I would want to maybe, I wouldn't say disagree, but to um, deepen into pondering, which is like, there's a bit of a, okay, so focus on the gratitude, you know, do the work, like, mm. in my experience, gratitude even is a gift. Like, uh, I can maybe, sometimes I can, you know, work myself into gratitude, you know, like focus on, hmm. like I can do that. Um, but what powers that when I, when, when I do it and it works and it's not just a perfunctory, right. you know, um, it's when I'm the uh, recipient of generosity or the witness of generosity. And that just overwhelms me. Like, like when Napoon told me that story, yeah, you know, when, when I'm, uh, you know, when I was with my mother during her dying process, like there was just no question of having to work on anything. Mm. And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying like, don't focus on your generosity, but I just want to bring into this moment the the gratitude that's already already there yeah you know and because you're actually not you're not actually gaining it it's just revealing what is yeah. already true so i guess the 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 process then is what are the processes that you can engage in that will help you reveal what is already there so then it goes yeah. back to what are those practices is it a breathwork practice yeah, is it always a, like this, a cold plunge practice yeah there's so many there are lots of great practices and our society is so oriented toward okay what do i have to do <laughs> like let's translate this into something to do and without without denigrating doing i just want to say there's something else here and and it is to receive all of these blessings including the blessings of forgiveness and generosity like and don't just like take a pause about turning it into a program, right? a self-help program, like a to-do. Man, I mean, I just, and it's not that you, the, the, that you should forever not do things or work on yourself or do these practices. It's that there is a part of the growth process that our society tends to ignore that a lot of people are ready for right now yeah. in this phase of doing and non-doing and yin and yang. Uh, and I just want to put a word in for that part of the process. Sure. Like maybe even if you're listening to this conversation that we're having, maybe something is moving in you. Mm. And to let it move in you and let it work you without escaping it by saying, okay, got to do something with this. Like what about trusting an intelligence, an order outside yourself? Yeah and not being in control and knowing that as this thing that's stirring in you works on you, that all kinds of new doing will come from that. And maybe holding, if you wanna do something, maybe it's to touch on your intention to recognize the moment when this thing that's been activated in you is ready to express itself. Yeah, it's the it's the the doing of the non-doing, which is isn't itself a paradox, right? I, I think of 
you know, I've done a lot of amazing practices. I was uh, blessed to receive some amazing breathwork guidance from, uh, you know, a, a recent brother, Lucas Mack. And that was an amazing practice that brought me to this, you know, deep state of connection and gratitude. And, and it was a beautiful practice and, and very helpful. But I also can think back to one particular sunset when I was in Costa Rica recently, and I was just sitting in a chair by myself watching the waves crash and watching the sunset over the waves and that moment by just sitting there and there was a party going on and there was all kinds of things that i could have done but it was that moment of not doing anything and just being still in that that was so so enriching and so valuable and i just had this felt sense that if everybody could just sit here and not do anything and witness and let the sunset bathe them and let the water you know become a part of them as the waves crash and really feel it that's that's enough like everything else would quiet down in that in that one moment you know and and so it's uh i think really it it then goes back to the doing is only in the intention the intention to be be willing to receive so that idea like i'm going to be willing to receive the plenum of of the whole world and how glorious it actually is whenever that arises it could be in a kiss with your 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 partner a hug with your friend or a conversation or a sip of your water like it doesn't matter like that could be that could be enough and also go for it like do the breath work go into ceremony do these other things too like it's it's that common it's a yes and situation Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you know like everything i've said probably a lot of it is coming from personally um i'm knowing that i need to actually spend some time not doing anything at all right without even making that into a to-do but but trusting like i had an experience like you were describing just a few days ago where i was holding this live event the first for a long time and i was after the first four hours of it we had a break i was like wiped out and it was snowing in boulder i was just looking at the snowflakes i was not planning the next session i was not doing anything i wasn't even doing looking at the snowflakes (laughs) and it was so replenishing for me i was like man i need a lot more of that in my life yeah after the last 10 years of frantic doing yeah and and like learning how not to do because i'm sure i'm not alone in this like instead of actually not doing anything i will you know watch a a video or like do something to procrastinate not doing anything until i'm so exhausted like that's the only time i'm exaggerating a bit here but maybe some people can relate um that's the only time where i actually don't do anything is when i'm so exhausted that i out of exhaustion have to pause the tower building and or you get sick or i get sick right, right. like you're sick and you just literally right. it's like the universe is like stop and you, there you're not listening to the whispers like hey hey stop stop like, stop and then and then it starts screaming but 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 charles there's <laughs> this happening the amazon's <laughs> right. burning and you know right totalitarian medical totalitarianism is is coming and and and, and yeah yeah so don't stop now <laughs> But that, does that ever change? Yeah, that's a, and that's that's that. It's an interesting challenge. I feel I feel you a hundred percent in that. You know that because I'll 
it's even rare that I'll allow myself to experience these different moments. And it almost has to be in a in an almost ritualized sense of things where like I've carved out intentionally that mm-hmm. this is my space of non-doing and it's okay for me not to do. I give myself permission right. in a particular window, like that one party. This is a party. My whole intention for this day is the fucking party. So if I want to not do by sitting and watching the sunset, great, because the only other option is party, right? Like So either right. way, you know, I'm not doing anything good, but then I'm here at home and I know that if I get on my computer, I could potentially write something that could impact some people. I could potentially think about something. I could journal about something. I could, right. I could stretch and myofascially release something that could help <laughs> right. me on the pickleball court. You know, there's something I could do. So when I'm doing anything, I'm slightly distracted. My brain's running in some low level process of doing something else as I'm doing this instead of just doing one damn thing, mm-hmm. you know, and really trusting that that's okay. And doing the one thing of nothing is also okay. And, and I think that's interesting is just we just have to be willing to give ourselves permission. You know, it's, it's really kind of a permission thing. I give myself permission to just pour this tea, mm-hmm. to just pour this tea. And that is actually a kind of wealth, like, or it comes from a feeling of genuine wealth. Yeah. Like there's no, nothing more fundamental than a wealth of time to feel like your time is your own. I'm on my own timeline. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not being called by this and that and the other thing and, and not my own man. Yeah. That is, I mean, animals have that. For you know? sure. Um, we watch our cats all the time. They nap whenever the fuck they want and then yep. they fight and then they play and then they, I'm surprised they're not playing pool right now, behind it, but they're napping because yep. that's what they want to do. Right. Indigenous people yeah. generally have a much slower pace of life. They are not usually in a hurry. Um, I mean, it's so ironic that after how many centuries of labor-saving devices having been invented, that we are more in a hurry than ever, busier than ever. That's another example of trying to attain the paradise that we're already in through more and more effort, more and more building of the tower. Yeah. I want to talk about self-love a little bit because there's there's something that you mentioned and you talk about the word inexcusable. And this is a very interesting word because it has a lot of deep implications when you say that an action was inexcusable. Yeah, it was inexcusable, yeah. How could you? <laughs> right? Some yeah. things are excusable, but but what you did or what they're doing, that is just inexcusable. Yeah. And so how does that how does that idea because that is something that we've we've kind of internalized this this idea that there's this there's different levels of judgment we're like creating ourselves as the adjudicator which we do to ourselves right if other people can do something inexcusable we can do something in, well this is all this is all a castigation of self projected onto other at a certain level but this judgment is what is what denies us from really actually feeling self-love and so how do we move beyond this this story this story that we're not good enough we're good based upon our this is a very deep deep question and it's it's really pervasive and for me you know recognizing how deep this judgment paradigm goes yeah um right so yeah inexcusable that's a form of 
rather extreme judgment. And any time that I'm in that kind of judgment, um, it means that there's something I'm not seeing. Because, because like another word for inexcusable, I mean, what that really means is inexplicable. I cannot understand how you could do that. If you had an excuse, like say, I don't know, say you, like you, you know, went and carjacked something and carjacked somebody's automobile, you know, and beat them up and pushed them out the door and drove off with it. Like, well, that's inexcusable. Well, maybe if you were, you know, desperately poor and had a history of abuse or whatever, maybe then I would understand. So when I say it's inexcusable, it means I can't understand it, I can't explain it. And you did that just because you were bad, because there's no excuse. So what I'm saying is that anytime I think that, it means that I don't understand where, that, where that's coming from. It means I'm missing some information. It means I'm not seeing something. Because if I saw everything and understood everything, then I would know that if I were in that person's shoes, in the totality of their circumstances, that I would very likely do as they did. I would understand. Therefore, I would forgive because I would know that there's really nothing to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I put a gun to your head and made you do something atrocious, everyone would say, well, you weren't really responsible because there was a gun to your head. Well, what if the gun to your head is takes the form of, <clears throat> you know, shaming that happened in your childhood where, where, where the fear of parental rejection was used to make you do things that your child's soul didn't really want to do. I'm not talking about heinous acts here. I'm just talking about like the, the gradual programming um, to, to violate your, your heart. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, how do I know? When I judge somebody, like say I want to judge Donald Trump, you know, for being a narcissist. Is that just because he's just bad? And I'm, I'm better. I'm made of better stuff. Because <laughs> if I were president, I wouldn't have said that shit. I wouldn't have done that. Like, do I know that? That I am better than another human being? That's why I enjoy hanging out with um, ex-addicts and, and ex-criminals. When they've really gone there, they know that they're not better than any other man. They mm -hmm. know that. Mm -hmm. And what a relief, you know? to Because that is truth to be in truth with somebody so judgment is it's not something like like the new enemy to fight in yourself because that's self-judgment so then you can ask whoa okay i'm in judgment of these people where does that come from what hurts in me why do i want to set myself up as better than them it obviously comes from self-rejection and if you have total self-acceptance, then there's no psychological motive to set yourself up as superior to those who are not woke, those who are not conscious, you know, those who have low vibrations, those who don't get it, the sheeple, the COVID-idiots, the conspiracy theorists, like whatever epithet you have for those who are worse than you, like you are not seeing the truth and therefore have no way of being an agent of healing. Right. Mm. That it's the, it's the gateway to real compassion. And it doesn't preclude the real world utilization of some kind of 
you know some kind of criminal justice system right like some but i think the model upon which it's built is missing this aspect of the the compassion of you know pretty much everyone is doing their best giving the circumstances that they are and if they're not there's some delusion that's acting upon them some myth of separation that allows you to perpetrate violence upon the other person there's some story that they're a part of that's there's a reason there's a reason there's a causal reason behind it so instead of this you know redemptive violence is another way to put it through justice or whatever as the punishment there's another way to look from compassion and say okay there needs to be a timeout here and maybe this timeout this timeout needs to last as long as you know you're going to continue to hurt other people which certainly can't be allowed but like we need to rally compassionately through that instead of this retributive redemptive violence you know system like how do we actually rehabilitate and we've seen this in some of the nordic countries how effective this actually is in recidivism how effective it actually is to rally and try and support them putting art in the prisons allowing them to contribute allowing them to actually start to heal in a different way than this other model but that judgment model is so pervasive in our culture internalized and it seems like in this in this more beautiful world it's that interesting balance of we got it we still have transitionary points where there still needs to be we're we're sick in a lot of ways and so we need to protect certain things we talked about it yesterday in rwanda genocide that was an uh, you know a, a, a reasonable time for intervention you know where some intervention was needed because of people were being absolutely you know decimated by another people in power and like providing some sense of force in that situation was necessary but the force can still be carried out with a deeper deeper understanding a compassionate understanding of like i still see myself in you some way if i look deep enough in me i am everything too and in your situation i very well might be doing the same thing so while i need to stop you and maybe that force even includes death but i must do that i do it with with a deep compassion and a deep sorrow that this is the action that must be taken at this point yeah we don't have a criminal justice system right now we have a criminal punishment system and it's like you were saying and like the rwanda example sometimes intervention of force is necessary to protect people it might be necessary to lock somebody in prison so they don't harm people but when we do it because we think that person is unsalvageable and we want to punish them then we're just playing the same game yeah and um forestalling any possibility of healing it doesn't mean that you know everybody's going to heal if we give them enough therapy or something like that but at least to offer the possibility yeah that that invitation and there's a there's a quote from uh from goethe that um that you have in in your book the way you see people is the way you treat them and the way you treat them is what they become right and some fucking deep deep wisdom there is like if we want people to actually heal we have to see the healed person within them and see that even if they're even if they're behind bars because you know we have to still see like i still see the healed person in there and if when that emerges you know 
like there's another opportunity and maybe that's just an opportunity within the bars i don't know i don't i'm not trying to revise i don't have the intelligence and and to revise the criminal justice system you know but i see that i see that truth as being as being real right yeah beautiful i love that quote the way we see people is the way we treat them the way we treat them is the way they become so one way i'd like to phrase that is the, the story that you hold about somebody is an invitation for them to be that and for them to act from that. So if I hold you in suspicion, then, and I don't trust you, and I'm on guard all the time, then I'm inviting you to be my adversary. And like if I see you as a threat to me and and, you know, gosh, your platform's expanding at the expense of mine or something <clears throat> like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to do the things that are going to put you into that role. And the same, I, I, I you know, I speak, at, I wrote a book on climate, actually. I speak at a lot of environmental things. Uh, it's a very counter-narrative book <clears throat> in many, many ways. But one of the things I say is like this whole thing about, about, um, using the threat of uh, you know civilization's annihilation to make people do pro-environmental things or putting financial incentives on it like trying to scare people into environmentalism to talk to those corporate executives because i know that they don't give a shit about the environment so i'm going to scare them into it instead shame them into it instead that's a pretty insulting story to hold about somebody that they don't care about the world. Like what if we came to them and said, I know that you care deeply about this world and I know that you are in an economic corporate setting where your care has to struggle against the bottom line. Let's change that together. Mm. Let's change the regulatory system so, or the economic system so that your care does not have to struggle against the bottom line anymore like because i know who you are and i know that until that regulatory system changes that if you want to listen to your heart you're going to have to do some brave things you're going to have to make some choices that look like they're against the bottom line you're going to have to be audacious and i'm risk, with you brother and risk your potential termination for that yeah you might get fired yeah. and i'm with you brother and i know who you are like if you hold somebody in that knowledge man like when i'm held in that i have courage like my courage is not my own my courage is how i am held by people who are close to me yeah so this this like invitation into a story to to but you have to actually see that if i if you're like you know the exxon mobil executive and i go into it with okay i'm going to manipulate this dude by saying these pretty things about him uh even though i'm not really seeing it right now what I'm seeing is a corporate asshole. Mm. Like if I go into it with that, it's going to be fake. It's not going to work. So I have to actually see it. And to see it, I have to look for it. To look for it, I have to know it exists. And that's where the story comes in. The story of our civilization. The story of the world. To see it, you have to look for it. To look for it, you have to know it exists. And we have an ideology that says bad bad thing people do bad things because they're bad people we have an ideology where there's where the world is 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 full of of ruthless self-interest maximizing competitors 
We have an economic system that makes that true in our experience. There's a lot of cards stacked against us to actually look for the divinity in each other. And yeah, part of my, my role here is to change that story. And also continually pointing to the root cause. You know, I was talking to, you know, Harry Grammer, who's, you know, on the forefront of the fight for racial equality and, you know, criminal justice and supporting people who are, you've know, been paroled and are out, you know, coming out of transitioning out of the criminal justice system. And he's deeply invested in it. And he described racism as the, as just an extreme form of otherness. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, sexism, classism, racism, uh, you know, war, all of, they're just, it's an extreme form of otherness. And so if you really get to the root cause, this root, the back again to that myth of separation, that feeling that I am separate from other, like really get through that and say, all of this is based on a story that's not true. And you know, this story is not true. And I'm going to help you see it because I see that story. I see that truth in you. It just changes, it changes the way. And I think it gives the invitation for genuine healing, not just the the actions that appear to be in alignment with what with what you want to mm -hmm. show that I'm good. It actually right. can create the inherent goodness. Yeah. And it's so close. Like the healing can happen so fast. Yeah. Rwanda is such a good example. Um, you know, when when the intervention happened, there was For not, people who don't know, just describe yeah. briefly what happened in Rwanda. Well, there was a gigantic genocide there in, what was it, the early 90s, where the Hutus basically like slaughtered millions of Tutsis with machetes. You know, and if you were a Hutu man and you didn't join the gang and start cutting, like, you know, like cutting whole families down, then you would get slaughtered because you weren't, you know, on our side. Like, and it only stopped when there was an armed intervention. And then afterwards, yeah, like some people went to prison and stuff, but there was not, the Tutsis didn't then rise up and slaughter all the Hutus. They understood that it has to stop. Mm. And so they had like these truth and reconciliation uh, circles where like the, the perpetrator would be there and the victim would describe what it was like to watch her entire family get slaughtered before her eyes. And she would tell her, tell her story. Like a lot of times the victim just wants the story to be heard and wants the perpetrator to really know what it was like. And if you don't get that, then maybe you want punishment and you want vengeance. But those are maybe are substitutes for the closure of that story. So anyway, there was, you know, it's by no means perfect, but you know, 20, 30 years later, that society, at least it's not in, you know, a continued bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so much hope there. There's an organization called Seeds of Peace. Are you familiar with, uh, with mm. what they do? They take um, Israeli youth and Palestinian youth who are, you know, have a lot of vitriol towards mm -hmm. each other and they bring them together in a kind of a neutral place and they lead them through this, just the, the humanization of community of this process of hearing about their family and what they eat and what it's like at the kitchen table and sharing these stories and they come as enemies mm -hmm. and what they've found through their process is they leave as like oh like i see you i see you as just the same on this other story on this other other side of this mm -hmm. wall right and in this and it's a beautiful example of what's possible there and and i think that's why 
when we hear the story of you know the the allies playing soccer with the axis you know on that one christmas on that one christmas day where the soccer ball started in world war one yeah world war one right yeah there's like fuck it's christmas we're gonna play soccer and then they're just playing soccer with each other and they realize shit man we're just fucking 20 year olds who are just slaughtering each other in the most heinous ways but we could just play soccer Mm -hmm. you know like what like it just points to the absurdity of these things that can be perpetrated when the otherness has just taken hold yeah yeah you were saying you know talking about racism sexism like all of these are forms of dehumanization dehumanization which is to hold somebody in a story that they are less than fully human and it's not just racism and sexism and all these isms that exemplify dehumanization it's also what we're seeing on the internet in social media in the comments threads where like i mean it's the same vibration of you must be morally or mentally deficient to think such a thing to say such a thing shame on you like like it's it's just this in total environment of of reducing each other to something less than than human i started an online community um i'm like okay i'm going to do the opposite the community is going to be based on reverence where every interaction you strive to hold in mind that the person you are writing to is a divine being which is simply the truth let's start living in reality people <laughs> it's the truth yeah. you are a divine being yeah. you've had experiences where you know that where you experience it right now it's true you know it stop gaslighting yourself live in the truth yeah yeah so vital so vital for our time so prescient and this is this is one of the things that the pressure of the circumstances and the situation that we've seen on so many fronts has the opportunity to reveal you know by by taking things to these extremes you know you can actually start to see from the meta perspective behind the curtain of what's actually happening and you know potentially that's the that's the positive way to look at whatever that's a way that could potentially give us hope we don't know it we it has the story hasn't been told we can't say that oh man i can't believe this happened and well we don't know from the future perspective whether this was absolutely necessary for us to become aware Mm -hmm. of these things that were internal like we can't say that i remember i asked one of you know my spiritual teachers paul selig and I asked him, I said, you know, did Jesus make a mistake? Because, you know, his teachings have gone on to justify so much genocide and war for all of these years. And, you know, Paul is just a very humble and sweet man, but he has the access to the guides or anything but humble and sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he we were just eating, we we're eating shrimp at a at a dinner. And I did I was just expecting to talk to Paul but then he's like i don't know let me ask and so he asked the guides and he says basically the guides and i'm paraphrasing because i can't remember exactly what they said but they were like you're looking at this from too short a perspective his teachings aren't done yet his teachings have just begun they're going to continue for eons into the future so to judge whether he made a mistake now or not is just a, a false perspective that you're adopting you're expect you're adopting the perspective of from up to this point 
but you don't know if all of that was necessary to keep his teachings alive so that maybe 2000 years the mystical truth something that ted decker is talking about finding that real christ consciousness within everybody what he was really saying it was necessary for all these power structures to enforce it and keep it in play and instill this idea and then eventually that would transmute into something that is happening exactly perfect for the world Mm -hmm. despite all of the atrocity that has been led up and of course there's a lot of good you know there's a lot of beautiful feelings that people have gotten and understandings i'm not saying that it's all been bad but there has been quite a bit of bad burnings of witches and etc you know inquisitions all of these different things and that was a moment for me to be like damn to be in judgment at this point you know to not have the you know epistemic humility to say well shit i don't know i don't know if this was exactly what was needed because i've certainly had a lot of terrible things happen in my life that i thought were terrible quote terrible that weren't terrible that were absolutely necessary to put me on the path to where i was going failed attempts at this failed relationships failed all of these things you can judge those things as failures but they were absolutely necessary for my own progress and my own path and so i think part of the art of living is to have that humility and also make the choice like i remember when i got in my car accident i which was completely random and heinous and my face was disfigured and I had just this overwhelming sense and I felt really guided in it. It's like, I don't know why this happened, but I know it happened for me. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know yet. And I'm yeah. still trying to figure that out. I have some ideas, but I don't know fully yet. And maybe I won't know, but it's just the choice for faith that I have faith mm-hmm. that this happened for a reason mm-hmm. and just it hasn't been played out. Or maybe I just don't have the ability to see from that 5D perspective where I can look back down and, and see exactly what was necessary yes yeah you don't necessarily have to understand what the purpose was for the purpose to have had its effect right you know and and sometimes trying too hard to figure out what it meant is an escape from fully receiving the experience yeah yeah Yeah, no doubt yeah it is a trust in life that you're talking about it's it's a choice for faith Mm -hmm. you know it's like that's if if i could have a superpower like that having faith as a superpower where you really believe that I mean, it would buffer so much, you know, faith in faith in my in interbeing, faith in faith in the stories, faith in myself, faith in the in the cosmic interweaving. You know, instead of these serendipitous moments being like, "Oh wow, I can't believe it! I can't believe that we synchronistically came together," you know, but having faith, like, of course we did, of course we did. Yeah, but for me, like, I can't believe it is a medicine too, because of course, it's like, yeah, it's like this that it gives me gratitude. It's like whoa (laughs) how did that happen oh my god i didn't make that happen yet it happened the universe is generous yeah it is it's a gentle reminder just pushing us towards and how many times does that have to happen before we start to have faith you know that's the question like how many times do we have to prove it to ourselves that these fundamental truisms are actually true right well maybe that was just coincidence (laughs) you know yeah let me do it another hundred times please tell me again Yeah. yeah Let me pull another oracle card that is exactly giving me exactly the information that I need randomly. Right. Let me pull that for the 500th time before I actually believe that something's going on here besides the Forer effect or the Barnum effect where I'm believing that it is blah, blah, blah. Right, wish, wish fulfillment. And, yeah, exactly. And, right, yeah. I, and, it's, and so many times I'll be brought to tears and the tears are, for me, it's this cleansing of an old story. It's a cleansing of an mm. old story and the revelation of a new story. And it's almost like I have to cry the death of that old story or at least some partial version of that that's dying in those moments as gratitude emerges and i 
remember, oh yeah, God is everywhere and in everything. You know, God's a challenging word, but whatever, source is everywhere and in everything. The unseen allies are everywhere and in everything. And the tears come because I forget. Mm. You know, and I think that's part of the human condition is how many times must we remember before we really remember? I've lost count. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, I, I don't know if you're up for this, um, but there's, there's a story that you tell, and it's kind of a long story, but it's at the end of, it's at the, end of the more beautiful world. And I don't know if you're comfortable you know, telling that story, but I think as a way to kind of bring this to fruition, it, is, it brings me to tears every time I read it and every time I see it. So um, at this point, we could potentially read that. I could read it, you could read it, or we could just encourage people to, you know, get the book and, and read that story for themselves because it's, it's an unbelievably powerful idea, you know, of retelling in which the, yeah. truth of, the objective truth is not important, but the subject, the feeling of the truth of it yes. is really important. Yeah, um, I have mixed feelings. Um, I put it at the end of the book for a reason. <laughs> I hear you. I fucking hear you, and that's why I yeah. wanted to ask humbly and see. What and your and it also was. does stand on its own. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think I would. It is like, without tr seeming immodest, I would like to say that it is a medicine story. Like it, it's no profoundly in fact impactful. So I don't want to deny people the medicine or say, well, you have to buy the book, um, you know, and you, otherwise you won't get that. So I think I would, I would be willing to to read it. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I could just tell it, but uh, I always leave some parts out if I just tell I, it. It's so beautifully, it's so beautifully yeah. told. Let's take a let's take a bathroom break and maybe come back in uh, right. and read the story to to bring this thing to a close. All right. Let's do it. All right. Beautiful. All right. After. Uh, rather emotional pee break uh let's carry on with this with this story brother yeah so yeah um yeah i'm not sure if i'd quite call it a myth i would call it an allegory uh, but it, it uh you know and when you listen to it don't worry about it whether it's literally true just um take it in for what it is This is this book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Um. I invite everybody to, you know, if you're listening, just clear the space to receive it. If you're doing other stuff, you know, and you want to continue doing the other stuff, just hit pause and come back to it. Come back to it when you can really uh, just receive it. All right. So a gathering of the tribe. Once upon a time, a great tribe of people lived in a world far away from ours. Whether far away in space or in time, or even outside of time, we do not know. They lived in a state of enchantment and joy that few of us today dare to believe could exist, except in those exceptional peak experiences where we glimpse the true potential of life and mind. One day, the elders of the tribe called a meeting. They gathered around, 
and one of them spoke very solemnly. My friends, she said, there is a world that needs our help. It is called Earth, and its fate hangs in the balance. Its humans have reached a critical point in their collective birthing. The same point our own planet was at one million years ago. And they will be stillborn without our help. Who would like to volunteer for a mission to this time and place and render service to humanity? Tell us more about the mission, they asked. It is no small thing. Our shaman will put you into a deep, deep trance, so complete that you will forget who you are. You will live a human life. And in the beginning, you will completely forget your origins. You will forget even our language and your own true name. You will be separated from the wonder and beauty of our world and from the love that bathes us all. You will miss it deeply, yet you will be unable to name what you are missing. You will remember the love and beauty that we know to be normal only as a longing in your heart. Your memory will take the form of an intuitive knowledge as you plunge into the painfully marred earth that a more beautiful world is possible. As you grow up in that world, your knowledge will be under constant assault. You will be told in a million ways that a world of destruction, violence, drudgery, anxiety, and degradation is normal. You may go through a time when you are completely alone, with no allies to affirm your knowledge of a more beautiful world. You may plunge into a depth of despair that we in our world of light cannot imagine. But no matter what, a spark of knowledge will never leave you. A memory of your true origin will be encoded in your DNA. That spark will lie within you, inextinguishable, until one day it is awakened. You see, even though you will feel for a time utterly alone, you will not be alone. We will send you assistance, help that you will experience as miraculous, experiences that you will describe as transcendent. These will, will fan that spark into a flame. For a few moments or hours or days, you will reawaken to the beauty and the joy that is meant to be. You will see it on earth. For even though the planet and its people are deeply wounded, there is beauty there still, projected from past and future onto the present as a promise of what is possible and a reminder of what is real. After that glimpse, the flame may die down into an ember again as the routines of normal life there swallow you up. But after each awakening, they will seem less normal, and the story of that world will seem less real. The ember will glow brighter. When enough embers do that, they will all burst into flame together and sustain each other. Because remember, you will not be there alone. As you begin to awaken to your mission, you will meet others of our tribe. You will recognize them by your common purpose, values, and intuitions and by the similarity of the paths you have walked. As the condition of the planet Earth reaches crisis proportions, your paths will cross more and more. The time of loneliness, the time of thinking you might be crazy, will be over. 
you will find the people of your tribe all over the earth and become aware of them through the long-distance communication technologies used on that planet. But the real shift, the real quickening, will happen in face-to-face -face gatherings, gatherings in special places. When many of you gather together, you will launch a new stage on your journey, a journey that, I assure you, will end where it begins right now. Then, the mission that lay unconscious within you will flower into consciousness. Your intuitive rebellion against the world presented to you as normal will become an explicit quest to create a more beautiful one. A woman said, tell me more about the time of loneliness that we might prepare for it. The elder said, in the time of loneliness, you will always be seeking to reassure yourself that you are not crazy. You will do that by telling people all about what is wrong with the world, and you will feel a sense of betrayal when they don't listen to you. You might hunger for stories of wrongness, atrocity, and ecological destruction, all of which confirm the validity of your intuition that a more beautiful world exists. But after you have fully received the help we will send you and the quickening of your gatherings, you will no longer need to do that because you will know. Your energy will thereafter turn toward actively creating that more beautiful world. A tribeswoman asked, how do you know this will work? Are you sure our shaman's powers are great enough to send us on such a journey? The elder replied, I know it will work because he has done it many times before. Many have already been sent to earth to live human lives and to lay the groundwork for the mission you will undertake now. He's been practicing. The only difference now is that many of you will venture there at once. What is new in the time you will live in is that you will gather in critical mass and will each awaken the other to your mission. The heat you will generate will kindle the same spark that lies in every human being. For in truth, each one is from a tribe like ours. The whole galaxy and beyond is converging on Earth, for never before has a planet journeyed so far into separation and made it back again. Those of you who go will be part of a new step in cosmic evolution. A tribesman asked, is there a danger we will become lost in that world and never wake up from the shamanic trance? Is there a danger that the despair, the cynicism, the pain of separation will be so great that it will extinguish the spark of hope, the spark of our true selves and origin, and that we will be separated from our beloved ones forever? The elder replied, that is impossible. The more deeply you get lost, the more powerful the help we will send you. You might experience it at the time as a collapse of your personal world, the loss of everything important to you. Later, you will recognize the gift within it. We will never abandon you. Another man asked, is it possible that our mission will fail and that this planet Earth will perish? The elder replied, I will answer your question with a paradox. It is impossible that your mission will fail. Yet, its success hangs on your own actions. The fate of the world is in your hands. The key to this paradox lies within you, in the feeling you carry that each of your actions, even your personal secret struggles, has cosmic significance. You will know then, as you know now, that everything you do matters.
There were no more questions. The volunteers gathered in a circle, and the shaman went to each one. The last thing each was aware of was the shaman blowing smoke in his or her face. They entered a deep trance and dreamed themselves into the world where we find ourselves today. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. That paradox is an invitation to not worry so much about the world at large, but worry about what we can all do in our own world. The ocean contained in the drop that we are. And therein lies great freedom to say, all right, I can do this because it's, this is about me and just trust the rest. Yeah, I would add, I would speak to your knowledge, you and everyone, that this shamanic technology that has placed you here has placed you at exactly the right spot for you to do your work and to simply recognize in each moment what is yours to do and know that that is enough. Oh. All right. You've shared... uh... We've shared a lot from your book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. There's amazing articles that you all you have available on your website. Uh, URL for the website? CharlesEisenstein.org. CharlesEisenstein.org. And also, so people know that you don't do this all with some financial, like you're not getting paid for this podcast or a lot of the speeches you I'm do not. Or the things yeah. <laughs> oh man i can't believe i'm here i got i got honey dicks <laughs> but there's a donate button there and uh and you're counting on you know reciprocity itself as- yeah it's not that i don't like money or don't want money it's more like like uh i mean it's normal to you know people don't pay for blogs usually Online courses I have also, you know, ordinarily people expect to pay for those, but it's like, for me, like, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll see like some amazing thing online, you know, and then, and then there's like the premium content and you have to pay for that. Or like there's some paywall and I just feel like the sense of dismay. I'm like, oh man, all those beautiful words. And in the end, they're in it for the money. And I know that that's a judgment and I'm sure that there's mixed motives, but I feel like a letdown. And and when I when I really look into myself, I'm like, do I want to play that game of mm, gonna keep it unless you give me money? You know, I'm gonna withhold it. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. So I I do things by gift, which means that people decide how much they want to pay. Could be zero, could be, you know, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much how I continue doing my work is people, you know, they donate, they give me monthly support or whatever. 
and um, and yeah, that kind of you know tells me that uh, this is the work for me to do. And if you know if the support dries up, then I take that as a signal that eh, maybe I should do something else. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that deep trust in the law of reciprocity. You know, it's one of the one of the businesses. Um, that I have is a, it's a yoga studio called Black Swan Yoga. Mm -hmm. And Black Swan Yoga is based entirely on a donation model. So we offer the yoga and you pay what you want at the end. Mm -hmm. And overwhelmingly, it's uh, the business works. Yeah. People pay because the yoga is great and the experience right. is top notch. And, you know, that feeling, trusting that sense of reciprocity is going to come. It's a, it's a beautiful, like it's a beautiful model. And, for those people who do charge for courses and I have things that, that I charge for and there is some value in making that investment to show that you're really serious there yeah. and you're not having people in there to come in to denigrate the community just because they can and throwing right. around. Like there's all kinds of different reasons right. for that that are super valid and important and it's important to maintain the integrity with the, with the buy-in. Yeah, all, I'm not, I'm like not saying that my way is better, you know. No, but there's, um, also, yeah. there's also a beauty and there's a, time for, there's a time for all of it. And I think the world we're in is a world in which we need to open source as much healing as possible. And sometimes yeah. that requires buy-in for certain sections and certain ways that and also a way that the people who are doing that can accumulate you know enough resources for them to continue to produce it and support the teams and there's all sure. of those different things but the the more that we can get to that that place um as a collective you know the better off we'll be because the law of reciprocity will hold it will hold given enough enough time and a big enough sample and yeah uh, and i applaud you for trusting that mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's more or less worked, although, you know, some definitely some bumps in the road. Yeah, learning curve. Yeah. Well, it appears that it might be working better than ever these days than uh, right now. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, yeah. Thank you for uh, having me on your uh, on your show. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate your. Uh, um. There's like a kind of a generosity in your conversation style that i really appreciate thank you brother yeah thank you brother like and you have like really intelligent insightful things to say but you don't like feel the need to stake out any territory so yeah I really, well, this is, I see uh, that. yeah. that's the humility of knowing that any territory i stake out i look at from 20 minutes later and be like whoa <laughs> why did i put that <laughs> stake I, right there i say that yeah right yeah, yeah. that stake is in the an interesting interesting spot let's yeah. just try to pull the stakes up and then mm -hmm. reevaluate and that's been the beauty of us not only in this conversation but in dinner last night and reading this it's like oh yeah like here's this other thing here's this thing i got in the habit of saying but you offer this other way to look at it and you go oh wow yeah like let's let's adopt that and that's that's the beauty and it's the beauty of that kind of open-mindedness to mm -hmm. to not be attached to your ideas being right at any given point but that it's just the evolution of knowing and the mm -hmm. evolution of sharing so i do my best yeah thank you you do well <laughs> thank you brother thank you and thank you everybody for tuning in thank you for your time and your attention and your love and we uh we love you all deeply Thank you for tuning into this podcast with Charles Eisenstein. Please share it with anybody who you think this conversation would be valuable for. I love you guys. 
and I'll see you next week.